Good morning, everybody. Today, our scripture is from James 4, 1 through 3. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Your desire, you desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. All right. A cheery, a cheery passage. Everybody all right? I'm going to rearrange the furniture while I talk for a second. It's good to see you all, even though I'm facing the wrong way. Um, yeah. All right. All right. We got everything back online. We're good to go. Create a little space and walk around. Um, okay, I have a couple things I would like to add to uh, for, uh, as announcements go. I wrote them very, very small. I don't know why. Okay, um, uh, there's no way to say this. Like, we're a little low on, on funds. <laughs> like, I don't, we don't talk about money very often other than, other than to encourage you to be generous with each other and with your community. Uh, we find ourselves about 20 grand below where we should be, and we are in the process of of trying to find sort of like some pastoral staff. We've, we've lost some staff this year. Uh, and so all of this is coming into play, as well as we were trying to figure out how to launch the hospitality team with donuts and coffee and stuff, and there's just not money to justify that, plus there's a pandemic, so we're like, we don't know if we should yet. So we're like, we're, we're a little up in the air, so those of you who have like uh, um, emailed us and said, hey, we want to serve, we want to help in hospitality and stuff, we're, we still have your information. We're going to contact you, and uh, we're trying to figure out how to do this. Uh, it's, it's complicated right now, and, and we're not real sure whether or not we should actually do coffee and stuff. But other than that, I wanted to let you know the need. Sometimes people don't give unless they know the need. Uh, we're about 20 grand less than where we should be right now, and uh, we're, this is the part where we go through the budget, and we just start, you know, getting rid of non-essentials, like not people, stuff that we're, that we're buying. <laughs> you go and you go. Keep the donuts. Um, Nothing like that. Um, so yeah, those two things, they kind of go together. They're kind of separate. Um, but just know that uh, we're in need uh, in that way. So I always throw it out there. If you're driving along the road and you find a suitcase full of money, let us know. Um, we'll be sure to help find the owners. And I have, I have nowhere to go from there. That was a joke I started and can't finish. Um, so today we're talking about gentleness again. This is gentleness part two. Um, and... We're sort of calling this one Difficult Curriculum. So, Michael, when you ask what the title of the sermon is, Difficult Curriculum. Um, <clears throat> because, uh, so two weeks ago, we, we talked about sort of the confrontation between Apollos and, and Priscilla and Aquila and how they did this and how they managed to confront somebody and actually change them and stay friends. Um, and I, I want to like, like point out, nobody has done that in two years. In, in our world today. <laughs> Nobody has ever confronted anyone and stayed good. I'm just joking. I'm using hyperbole. It's good. Um, it's a really hard thing to do. Like, it's a really hard thing to do. Yet they did it um, because they're wearing uh, and displaying the fruits of the Spirit and they're living from these things. And this is what they have to offer each other. So, so last week, we followed that up with a talk about gentleness, and I realized there's a lot more to go. So we're doing that today. Next week, we're back in, uh, in, in uh, the book of Acts, chapter 19. So um, let's pray, and this is sort of going to anchor a lot of our conversation today. Nice calming waves. Good to go. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people that you have gathered here with us. I pray that, uh, I, pray that I would feel free um, to speak 
and to communicate uh, exactly what, um, what you have drawn my attention to, uh, what I think you're doing. And I pray that you would be in all of this, that it would be centered on you, that uh, your spirit would be present with us, helping us to discern um, who we are, what our role is in society, what our role is amongst the lives of each other. How are we um, to be fashioned into a separate people in this world? Not to see ourselves as citizens of, of these earthly kingdoms in which we live, but as citizens of a whole separate kingdom, nation, that you are bringing into this world and that you will uh, reign over with peace and justice and mercy. And one day, everyone will take notice. And I pray that somehow what we're doing here this very morning would take part in that. I pray that we would be gracious and gentle with each other. I pray that we'd be long-suffering and peaceful people, peaceable people. I would pray that, I pray that we would understand that your way forward into the world that you are building is through peace. That somehow, your presence will bring the peace um, to set things right again. And however that looks, even if you don't reveal it to us how it looks, I pray that you would uh, place that hope inside of us. Thank you, Father. Amen. All right. We got lost there for a second. All right, so um, there are... I'm gonna, okay, so I'm going to divide this into two topics, and there's really a, a couple, two or three different ways this could go this morning, and I haven't quite decided yet. I'm just kind of like feel it out, all right? Um, but like, it's, it's sort of like a design your own sermon, right? Here we go. But it's just me <laughs> doing the work. Um, so <clears throat> we're going to talk about cultural obstacles to gentleness that, that we have all around us that we are immersed in, and then we're going to talk about sort of tools by which we can cultivate gentleness because we're talking about fruit right fruit to the spirit what do you what do you do with, with, with you cultivate fruit you work on it there's things you need to prune you need to pay attention you need to work it doesn't just grow and if you ever find a wild fruit tree just growing in the middle of the woods and you eat that fruit you'll see it's not very good um you have to cultivate these fruit uh to make them well so um there are a few things let's see there are several things that are, are obstacles to um what I would say, obstacles to gentleness. I'm going to do some out-of-order slide rearranging here. So just, just hang out back there. I've I, I got to jump around. <laughs> um, okay, so I want to talk about some obstacles to cultivating gentleness. I think the first obstacle that we find in culture to cultivating gentleness um, is living in a culture that fosters aggression. We live in a world that champions aggression in millions of ways, in ways that you never even notice. Um, and we've talked about a lot of those already. We've talked about the story we tell about how we became sort of, if we talk about ourselves as Americans instead of Christians, we, we, we can talk about sort of the story of how we got here. And I mentioned that last week. Uh, we were born through aggression and, uh, and, and uprising and war. Uh, we are prepared for war at all times. Although we have noticed we are equipped and ready and capable of literally killing everyone in the entire world, but we're, we were not capable of saving even our own people during things like a pandemic because we prepare for aggression, but we don't prepare for healing. We just, we just don't. That's not a part of who we are as a society. But we are Christians. And so we can look at this through a different lens. Um, there are so many ways, um, so many things that are wonderful to foster inside of ourselves um, 
you know, like, like the fruits of the Spirit. I mean, and the things that you foster within yourselves, they begin to grow, they begin to multiply, they begin to take over, and, and they become very obvious to people. But the same also goes with aggression. Uh, we foster aggression. Uh, aggression and violence are the tools that the world has to intervene and deal with conflict. This is how the world deals with conflict, through power and might. It's all we understand, it's all we know. Um, and it's all, that's make, it's all that makes sense, and it's all that's made sense from the beginning of, of the first time a human being picked up a rock and threw it at another person. Like, this is, this is what we know. Um, and it's the only tool which we have. It's the tool that the, the, the church was never interested in this tool for, bringing, for, for handling conflict until 325 or so, um, Constantine, the, the emperor converts to Christianity and brings Christianity up to the seat of the emperor and sort of gives control of the empire over to the church. And from this point forward, aggression became our tool. And we never were able to put it down again. Um, and we cultivate it in each other. I'm going to back up a, uh, a slide here and read this. This is from Philip Kennison. Usually when I'm talking about fruits of the Spirit, um, I'm using a lot from uh, a few select authors. David, uh, Philip Kennison is one of my favorites. He wrote this book called Life on the Vine. I've mentioned it a few times. You should read it. So he says this. He says, we are taught at an early age and in various ways that only the tough survive. Nearly every day we hear of of another hostile corporate takeover, and we are told that the business world is a dog-eat-dog kind of world where only the most aggressive, competitive, and therefore fittest survive. It seems ironic that so many Christians who are opponents of evolution have so few qualms with this form of social Darwinism. Um, little shade thrown under there. Um, so, uh, thank you, Philip. So, uh, I, I want to talk about this, but I, I want to be very specific because we've already talked a lot about aggression. We've already talked a lot about how the, the tools of the empire and how the church tries to wield them um, in error. Um, and so I want to specifically focus in real fast on, um, on how, I'm going to fast forward a little bit, on how culture specifically cultivates aggression in men. Um, many young boys are taught to be specifically aggressive in order to be considered a real man. Um, it's always on the back of our minds. You, you always want to like you, you see a man be, or a boy being emotional, and it's ingrained in us to sort of kind of be like, oh, bro, come on, come on, don't show that. It's, it's sort of ingrained in us by the society in which we live, and it's a very specific time. This is, this is not universal for all of human history. This is very specific to our time. Um, and when we, talk, when we tell boys to, come on, be a man, we're telling them to be aggressive. Um, and they display their, their strength and they hide their weakness, which is their emotions, considered to be weakness. And gentleness and tenderness are often described as feminine virtues. And, and when we say feminine, we're usually using it as a pejorative, um, as if it's bad. And so there is this sense where we want our boys to be aggressive. Um, and we train them in this way. And, and we can pragmatically think of thousands of scenarios in which this is a really good thing. Right? I mean, we can... But is it Christ-like? And that's where we need to come to is like, yes, lots of things are pragmatic. Loving your enemies is not pragmatic. The teachings of Christ are not really pragmatic. So why are they given to us? They're not supposed to make sense. It's a mystery, but this is how God is bringing salvation into and changing the world. And so I want to talk about this. I mean, we even use these labels to separate real men from more feminine men, as we say. Uh, we, we call some of them alphas, and we call some of them betas. And, and alpha males are usually those at the top of the social status and the hierarchy, and they have this greater access, supposedly, to power and money and, and, uh, and, 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 and mates and, 
uh, which, you know, they gain these, these things through physical prowess, intimidation, and domination. And alpha, alpha, alpha men are typically are what, what, what society is talking about in, in America when we talk about real men. Um, and in contrast, beta males, we say, are they're weak, submissive, subordinate. They're guys of low status, not respected by other men, and stuff like that. And this is how we kind of throw these words around. Someone says something, you know, like, you're, that's because you're a beta male, stuff like that. And, and we talk like this. And, I mean, I want to point out a couple things. Um, all of that, by the way, in fact, the alpha male, beta male thing, that's all made up. None of that's real. I hope people realize this. That's completely made up whole cloth. We can pinpoint the moment it was made up and who made it up. Um, it was, uh, oh, let's, let's do it. It's David Metch. Uh, he wrote a book in 1970 where he was studying wolves, and he wrote, he wrote a book called The Wolf. You can read it. The Wolf, uh, subtitle is Ecology and Behavior of an Endangered Species. And he proposes this idea from watching these wolves. He says, oh, there's an alpha male, and then there's beta males, and they submit to the alpha male. He's aggressive, and he's the one, and there's that. So in 1999... After 30 years of this sort of running rampant, this idea, in 1999, 29 years later, he writes another book and says, sorry, I was wrong. That book didn't get any press. No press at all. Everyone ignored it. He's like, but actually what I saw was an error, and if I look around, I actually, everyone else who has done this experiment can't confirm a thing that I found. None of it is real. This is all culturally created, and we're putting men in a competition against each other to become more and more and more aggressive, but what we're actually doing is we're, we're, we're making the world less safe, actually. We're making families and homes less safe when we speak like this. Not only are we, we naive in our understanding of masculinity, we're naive to think that this aggression that we're cultivating in men can be turned on and off like a light switch. It can't. We think it can be wielded and controlled, and it cannot. This is how sin works. Overwhelming statistical evidence tells us that the most dangerous person in the life of a mother and a child is the man of the house. Overwhelming statistical evidence. The man of the house is the most dangerous person in most children's lives, and most women's lives. Uh, 1,200 abused women are killed every year in the U.S. Domestic violence accounts for 15% of violent crimes nationally. Um, mass shootings tend to start off as domestic violence. The Newtown shooter, who was the first person he killed before killing all those children? His mother. Um, according to every town uh, for gun safety, 50 54% of mass shootings involve domestic or family violence. We are cultivating something in men that we cannot control, and neither can they. And this was never a part of Christ's plan to cultivate this in men, because if we're trying to understand what a man is, then we're supposed to look at Jesus, who is the pinnacle um, view of what an actual man is, and a display of perfect masculinity, and what it looks like, and what's he doing? He's washing people's feet, he's serving them, he's spending time with children, uh, he's educating women, He's laying down his life. He's giving up his, his privilege and his status and his office. He's giving up all of that to serve those around him, and he holds on to none of it. Even allowing his beard to be ripped out, the sign of his masculinity, his clothes to be ripped off and hung naked on a cross, displayed in full shame, as if to say, this is actually what power looks like, that I am able to choose this for your salvation. So how is it that we as a church just goes along with this kind of aggressive, masculine teaching of our children instead of Christ-like masculinity. Why do we do this? Because we have been formed by the culture instead of being formed by the Spirit and by Jesus Christ. Um, another thing that is an obstacle uh, to cultivating gentleness, I only have two things. I had a long list and I got it down to these two. Uh, faulty views of power. Um, so, uh, there are a lot of Christians who believe that they need power in order to affect change on the world around them. If I can rise to the seat of power, 
then I'm, it's actually, I'm capable of like, you know, feeding the poor and doing all these things and allocating money and moving stuff around and changing laws and I can make the world what God wants it to be, right? I can join with earthly power and I can make it better through doing this. Um, and so they think that they can pass laws and be philanthropic and they can use their, their wealth and influence to bring change. Now, all of that, again, sounds very pragmatic and of course it makes sense. If you have more money, you can do more things, right? It seems to make a lot of sense. Um, and there's even like financial gurus, Christian financial gurus who tell you, you should get rich so that you can be philanthropic. But I, I mean, I would argue that, I mean, one of the key messages of the Bible, of the Bible is that like, if you're not generous now, the things you aren't now, like if you get a bunch of money, you're, you're not gonna be generous then. That starts now. To whom much is given, much is required. Like, if you're faithful in the little, you'll, you'll be faithful in the big. Like, you, if you're not a generous person, if I throw a bunch of money at you, you're going to be like, you're going to pull it in close. That's what you're going to do. You're not going to leave it on the table and be like, who needs money? Like, Jesus does that, but it's very difficult for people like us to do that. Um, and if this is true, if we need power, in order, power, money, influence, all these things, in order to influence change in the world, then Jesus' plan was entirely wrong. He did everything wrong. He could have been born in a palace, right? If God's choosing where Jesus is going to be born, a palace in Egypt would have been a powerful place. A palace in Rome would have been a powerful place. A, a barn in Bethlehem, a little town called the House of Bread? Like, no. That's, that's not a powerful place. There's literally the saying in the first century, could anything good come from Bethlehem? Everyone knew nothing good could come from Bethlehem, yet God chooses to come from Bethlehem to us. Why? Because he's drawing you to the places where you think God can't be, which is at the bottom, which is where God <clears throat> is actually working. Um, he was born in a, in, a, in a stable instead of a palace, from Bethlehem instead of Jerusalem, a peasant instead of a Pharisee. He was poor instead of wealthy, choosing low-status disciples instead of successful Talmudim who have done a great job. Like, he's choosing all these failures, like we've talked about at length. Um, and only... Um, only the plan of God can somehow include all of this. Like, it doesn't make sense to us that God would do this. Because we think God only could work through power, because we believe we can only work through power. Um, and so second, only, the second thing I, I, that, that, that draws to my mind uh, in, in all of this is that, is that we believe that only the privileged can do God's real work in changing society. So if, if you think that we need power to do God's work, then you have just... You have just thrown out most people and said, no, no, God's work is for privileged people, people of privilege, typically white men, typically those at the higher, highest, highest levels of education. These are the people God is calling to do God's work, obviously. And everyone at the bottom is left out, and you can just gather around and watch. You can give us money. And this is how we talk about, sort of, like it's all subconscious. We would never really say this, but we think it. When we look at, at, at church structures, this is what we think. It also means that, and I suspect that many of my, of my, um, what my, my, my many of my uh, sort of upper class brothers and sisters um, suspect all along that like somehow God made them rich and powerful so that uh, they could do God's work. And it wasn't until this point that they could. This tends to be something that we think about. Um, this is why you'll oftentimes see someone delivering sermons whose main qualification for delivering that sermon is they're a famous athlete. And so we bring them up in front of the church. They're a famous athlete. They have power and influence and we should give them the microphone. Why? Because they have power and riches and influence. And this is how God works. And if God gives you that, now it's your time. I don't have that, so I'm gonna listen to you. But, like, it doesn't, 
really actually make any sense. Athletes, musicians, actors, CEOs, etc. These are the people that we want to listen to, and we want to hear them talk about God. Um, and they are, in, on, in all honesty, they're, they're no more qualified or wise. They're more qualified to teach the gospel or wise in their understanding of God than the inner city community elderly woman. They're not. Um, in matter of fact, it, it's probably the other way around. Because those who have lived really hard lives tend to know a lot more about God and about how to follow God through these things. Um, they, they are no more Christ-like than the one serving in children's ministry this morning back there. They are no, um, th- their wealth and success didn't equip them with a single attribute that makes them any more qualified to do God's work than you yourself already possess in your being right now. You are no more qualified to do God's work than I am. You're really not. God is already working in your life and God is already working in the lives of the people with whom you interact. And God is equipping you with what you need to bring them where God has for them to go. Um, This is all a part of sort of your journey as well. The poor and the underprivileged may actually be uniquely qualified to speak the truth that is uncomfortable for the rest of us to hear. Theologians down through the centuries have always pointed out that when God looks at the landscape and he's choosing somebody to use, he never goes for the person at the top. He never chooses the most qualified person. He usually chooses the younger brother. He usually chooses the foreigner, the immigrant. He chooses Israel. He could have chosen Sumer, the Babylonians, the Akkadians, Egypt, powerful nations. And God could have easily just said, hey, I'm here. I killed all your gods. I knock all their statues over. I'm your God now. I'm here to set things right. You got chariots, horses, gold, power. You got everything we need. Let's go. No, he takes one dude and brings him out to the middle of the desert and says, you're going to marry a foreign woman. You're going to become a mixed race people and I'm going to meet you there and we're going to build a pretty lowly kingdom that eventually the world is going to recognize and look up to as what they want to be. Like this, this is what God does. Um, Oftentimes, the desire for Christ-likeness is actually stripped away on our way to the top of wherever we're going. On our way up, oftentimes, you, have to, you realize you can only get so far, and you actually have to jettison some of your Christ-likeness on your way up. And by the time you get to the top, any shred of Christ-likeness that you typically had is gone and replaced with some vague deism. You talk about how, like, oh, I love God. I'm trying to be godly. I respect him because he's a godly man. But we stop talking about Christ We stop talking about Christ-likeness. And the difference between talking about somebody who's godly and somebody who's Christ-likeness is Christ-likeness is a specific revelation of who God is. Godliness can be openly interpreted to be literally anything, and it usually resembles exactly the person who is using the word godliness, that it looks like them. But Christ-likeness is something very different. And so you'll notice the higher we get in power, the more we jettison the ideas of Christ-likeness, of loving our enemies, of of serving the poor, of, of, of submitting to each other, of... Oh, man, like all of it just begins to fall away piece by piece by piece. The journey, guys, the journey forms us every bit as much as the destination. And in fact, oftentimes the journey will will change the destination. And you'll get to the top and you forget why you started the journey anyways. And you'll forget that 10 years ago when you started, it was, this was about, I, I I can bring the message of Christ to this world. And we can bring peace and reconciliation. We can make things whole again. By the time you get to the top, you're like, what do I gotta do to get reelected? It's all gone. It's all gone. Um, Let's talk about cultivating, shall we? That's far enough. 
I've depressed you enough. Let's go out the other way, right? Um, okay, so tools for cultivating uh, gentleness. I, I, I have three of them. Um, they're the same three that Kennison came up with. I read them, I was like, oh, yeah, I don't know where, you can't, you can't get better than this. Um, prayer for those who, who are you are in conflict with. Okay. Prayer for those who you are in con- conflict with. There's a way that this works and a reason that it works um, that when you grasp it, really brings a sense of humility and a sense of duty to your prayers. Uh, there is this, uh, like, I, I think you will find that there's a way you talk to your friends about people who you're in conflict, conflict with. There's a way you talk to your friends about it, and it ain't pretty all the time. Um, and when you talk to God, there's a way you talk to God about people. And perhaps you've noticed that the way you talk to people about people and the way you talk to God about people are not the same thing. You would never talk to God about people the way you talk to people about people. There's this sense of holiness and weight of what you're doing. Oftentimes, people are reluctant to even bring up their conflicts in their prayer time because they know what God is asking of them. Love your enemies. Pray for your enemies. Pray for those that persecute you. Uh, We know we know, and it, it makes us uncomfortable. Most of us have never actually talked to God about our conflicts other than vague prayers for deliverance. I'm going through a hard thing right now. You know what it is. I pray that you'd let me out of it. I pray that you would just set me free. You're asking God to get rid of this person. God has no intention of getting rid of this person. God has every intention of making this person your sibling. What are you going to do about that? Like, this is what God is doing. We want to destroy our enemies. And, and how do we destroy our enemies? In, in the world, we kill them. But what is God's plan for getting rid of your enemies? He's going to make them your brothers and sisters. And then they're gone. Your enemies are gone. Now they're at your table. Like, this is what God is doing, though. This is what God has always been doing. And prayer changes us. Praying for your enemies is one of the main ways that you can begin to love your enemies as you are commanded to do by Jesus. Uh, in fact, Jesus may be, uh, I mean, Jesus says that, that the reason you should love your enemies is literally so that you may be the children of your Father in heaven. How will you know they're children of your Father in heaven uh, if, you, if you love your enemies? This is a sure sign of it. I wanted to read you some of this passage, though. That's from Matthew chapter 5. I want to open this passage up a little bigger. I wanted to read it to you from the message. Um, I read everything back in the message sometimes. A lot of people look down on it. I don't think you understand. It's actually a pretty good translation. Except for his book of Romans. Don't do that one. The rest of them. Great. Like, he, he understands. And if you're not familiar with what the message is, it's just a, a, a uh, Eugene Peterson wrote it. He wrote it uh, every day. He would be riding home from work on the train, and he wanted his, his daughters, his little girls, to read the Bible. And so every day he would translate a little more of it. And it became the entire Bible translation for his kids and for me and my kids as well. Um, and so I like it. But look how it flows. I want you to read this because he captures something emotional and heavy about this. He says, you're familiar with the old written law. Love your friend and its, and its unwritten companion. Hate your enemy. I'm challenging that. I'm telling you to love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. That, right there. I have nothing to say. That's huge. I am telling you to love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the energies of prayer, for then you are working out of your true selves, your God-created selves. This is what God does. He gives his best, the sun to warm and the rain to nourish to everyone, regardless, the good and bad, the nice and nasty. If all you do is love the lovable, you expect a bonus? 
Anyone can do that. If you simply say hello to those who greet you, do you expect a medal? Any run-of-the-mill sinner does that. I like what he's doing. He's like, uh, your best test of just how Christ-like you are really does come about in times of conflict, how you respond to conflict. Are you able to be peaceable and gentle and caring of this person who may be trying to ruin you? Because this is what Christ literally was doing while he's suffering on the cross. Forgive them. They don't understand what they're doing. And there is... There's this sense when we're in prayer that we we see ourselves in proximity to God. We feel ourselves in the room with the divine, the cosmic creator of everything. And in prayer, we, we, we picture ourselves in proximity with God. And when we bring up this person in conflict with us, what happens? They are there with us. And now we're in the presence of God and enemy. And this is where the spirit moves. Prayer You may be confused into thinking that prayer is meant to change the world around you. It's it's intended to change you. It's intended to shape you. The act of prayer, of giving up time, of of blocking everything out, of being present with God, of humbling yourself. And it was this, it's always been seen as this sense of of a holy act. This is why, by the way, this is why people have always knelt historically during prayer. There's no command in the Bible to kneel in prayer necessarily that that we have to adhere to. It's because they they approached God as a king. My kids had a a Sunday school teacher once that used to say, okay, we're gonna pray. Um, How do you go before your king? And the kids would like get down on one knee and want to like hold up a sword. And like just all kinds of stuff. And I'm like... Yeah, there has to be this sense of reverence, which is why it's so uncomfortable when people start a prayer with, Daddy God? Sorry. No, joke. It's a joke. Relax. If you're a Daddy God prayer, I back it. I back it. I'll try not to point it out when you do it. Um, there is a, yeah, there's an, an, inherent, an, 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 uh, an inherent humility in prayer. Um, the second tool that, uh, that we've been given for cultivating gentleness is, uh, is confession. And I want you to think deeply about confession this week and exactly what confession accomplishes, okay? Um, Here's some ideas. Someone who is regularly confessing their shortcomings will not be surprised when someone else points them out. See how that works? Father, I repent of this. I'm a liar. I'm a cheat. I hate. I judge. And then people walk up and say, you're a liar. I literally confessed that this morning. High five, thank you for, for pointing that out. Um, like, this is sort of how confession works. The first time that someone ever pointed out, the first time anyone ever pointed out sort of like the, the presence of racism in my life, I was wildly offended, as white people are. I was wildly offended. How, how dare you? Who do you think you are? You're judging me. You're, all of this. But then as I spent time in prayer asking God to reveal any bias, and as I started thinking, are they right? And as I pray and ask God to reveal bias in my own heart and in my own life and how I look at the world around me, he did. <laughs> he showed me that I had some issues that I needed to take care of. And I learned to pay attention to my thoughts and my actions and I found more and I, and I learned to repent uh, as it was revealed. And over the years, confession like this has worked to sort of anchor me in gentleness as a response to the accusation of others. The only way that we are going to be able to move forward in our conversations about race is if we spend a lot more time, a lot more time in confession. So that when people point it out in you, 
you can agree instead of getting triggered. And you can listen, and you can search for truth. Maybe they're using hyperbole. Maybe they're exaggerating. They're looking through emotions at you, and it's okay. Forgive yourself. You don't always know what you're doing. Ask God to be present in that. Ask God to reveal that to you. And over the years, confessions like this has worked to sort of anchor me in this gentleness. Confession prepares you to receive corrections. Perhaps, perhaps this person talking to you and confronting you, perhaps they're right. Perhaps, they're, perhaps there are biases. Perhaps there are prejudices. Homophobia, racism, misogyny present in me. Perhaps I, I, I do favor the opinions of, of men over women, of rich over poor, of, of white over black. Perhaps I do, and if I do, I need to see it. And how will I ever be able to grow in this area if I block it all out and never am able to listen and be present with God and my brothers and sisters and repent? How? If I can never confess my sins, I will never be free of them. Perhaps God is talking to me through this other person who is confronting me. Perhaps I am incapable of seeing these things except in community. You are incapable of seeing an accurate view of God and yourself without the community of, of the saints around you. You need their view of God. You need their view of you. They are looking at you from angles you can never see. And they see things that you don't. We're one body. When you get stronger, they get stronger. Let's be present with each other in this way. Let's listen to each other in this way. So many people are trying to get through life with as little change as physically possible, with as little effort as physically possible, with as little growth as they possibly can. They want to stay as, the way they are until the end of their days so they can say, I have never changed. You're basically a dead man. You've never grown. You've never changed. Um, I am perpetually in a state of looking at myself three years ago and saying, what an idiot. Always. And you should be too. Three years ago, we were all idiots. Three years from now, we'll realize that we're idiots now. Like, this is how it works. It's how it works. Um, your sanctification isn't going to happen on its own. We're going part to partner with you in that. That's, that's how it works. We're with you. We're going to drag you towards your sanctification together. We're going to crawl towards this thing. The difference between the church and the world is that their powerful people can never admit mistakes because it makes them appear weak. And in the kingdom of heaven, the weak one is the one who can never admit that they're wrong. And the strong one is the one on their knees renting their clothes in front of God saying, I am a sinner. If you can admit that, if you can admit your, your, your failings, man, you're strong. Especially in front of everyone. It's so hard to get there. We can't, we're not trapped. We're not prisoners. We can confess. If you can't confess, you're a slave to what others think about you. And you don't care about their growth either. Another tool that we have, and I talked about this a couple weeks ago, mutual submission. I find this lately to be one of the most compelling things uh, in the text. Mutual submission. Um, here, James chapter 3 mentions this as well. I've given a few others. But, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, and then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, and good fruit, impartial, and sincere. Um, and so let's talk a little bit about conflict. The Spirit of God, you may not realize that the Spirit of God is present in that conflict. The Spirit of God never intended to keep the church from conflict. The Spirit of God is, is not trying right now to keep the church from conflict. 
Instead, the Spirit of God is present in that conflict and using that conflict to transform all of us. That is what God is doing. That's what God has always been doing. Where we gather and contend for for goodness and rightness and try to figure out what is happening, God is there speaking to us, transforming us. You will not be the same by the time he is done with that conflict if you really lean into what God is doing. The Spirit transforms us through it. Um, This is what, what, um, oh yeah, the phrase I heard from Pastor Tim Otto out in San Francisco, he, he, uh, he calls this the difficult curriculum. That's what it is. It's meant to teach you. It's meant to change you. God works through our conflicts to shape us, to recenter himself in our lives, to break down our ideologies. Um, all of the conflicts that the church at large is battling through, and there are so many right now, and all of these conflicts, let's name some politics, economic models, LGBT issues, racial uh, justice, um, misogyny, the, the, the role of women in the church, all of the things that the church at large is fighting about, God is waiting to be invited into these conflicts. He's sitting on the outside looking around saying, at some point, you're going to have to invite me into this. And you're going to have to get together in a room and you're going to have to invite me to be present and I'm going to speak to both of you. He's waiting to be invited. And I think the problem is that so many of us have such a a small interest in actually Christ-likeness and Christianity than we do in uh, sort of the ideologies that we've picked up and painted ourselves with. And God is waiting for you to cover yourself in him. God is waiting for you to represent him at the table. Um, Instead of trying to win arguments, uh, I mean, this is what we do. We try to win arguments. We try to claim victory. We try to conquer each other so that we can declare that we are right and they are wrong. But there's never a thought as to what is God trying to actually do through this conflict? Who is God trying to make us into? Why did God bring this conflict here, into my life, to your life? Why? We know it's for our sanctification, but we don't know how. And so we must admit that we're not in control and that we must listen and be present. We need to ask things like what power and privilege that we need to lay down in order to remain in relationship with this person. And I've said it a million times. This is the message of the entire book of of Romans. Paul is asking Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians, hey, you're having a hard time getting together because your morality is so different. What are you willing to give up of your power and your privilege and your wealth and all of it in order to remain in community with these people that God has brought to you? Because you have to. God brought them to you. They belong to you now. So you're going to have to look at the life of Christ and what Jesus did and how he lowered himself so that he could enter into community with us. You're going to have to begin to become Christ-like in this way because you belong to this person and they belong to you. Tertullian, one of the church fathers, said even the devil is God's devil. People think about it, they're like, I have no idea what that means. No, look, even the most difficult thing, it's God's thing, it belongs to God. God's in control of the whole thing. All we have is trust. All we have is our faith that Christ is ahead of us. Interestingly, a lot of studies show today that, that um, Christians who identify as conservative or liberal are far more comfortable with non-Christians who agree with them politically than they are comfortable with Christians who disagree with them. That is the surest sign ever that we have been pretty much completely shaped 
by Americanism. Completely. When you can't take communion with somebody that you disagree with. This is how we know. You look at us, you look at the world, you look at, you look at the American church, and then look at the first century church. These are not the same religion anymore. How did we allow ourselves to be so formed out of Christ-likeness? Friends, a, a lot of you carry anxiety because you, you're in conflict now and you don't know how to respond. I want you to know that's okay. You may not ever know how to respond. I don't always know how to respond. I don't always know what to do, what to say, what to think about this or that. Perhaps that's God's plan for you to move in mystery towards people, to sit with them, to hear them out, to enter into a relationship with them before you judge them, to find out what God is doing in their life and how you can help so they can see what God is doing in your life and perhaps, perhaps they can help you. Perhaps you could sit at their feet for a little bit and you can listen to them. And perhaps we can take turns listening and submitting to each other and asking God to be present in all of that. Don't be afraid. Don't be anxious. The tension and the difficult curriculum is supposed to be there. The conflict and the chaos, like the, 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 the picture of Genesis 1 and the earth was without form. It was void. The, the, the Hebrew word there is, is tohu bohu. And it's a weird phrase, but it basically means chaos and disorder. It didn't make any sense. Darkness, just chaos, no order at all. And the spirit in this chaos is drawn to it and hovers over it and carves out a space to bring a, a, little, a little peaceful garden out of which life can grow. And so that chaos in your life, what you need is not a shovel to dig yourself out. You don't need any tools but the Spirit of God. And he's there and he's waiting. He's hovering over the chaos that you are going through. And God intends through the Spirit to carve out a place of peace in your conflict and to plant the seed of life there to grow and to flourish so that you can be fruitful and multiply so that the grace of God can grow and spread. The early Christians believed in a day when the lights would come on and we would see exactly how God sees it. We are assured that that day is coming. I want to, I want to draw your attention to something I always read. It at, I read this passage a lot at weddings, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Let's read it. It says, it says uh, it's Philippians 1, 9 through 10. It says, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So he tells us, he tells the church in Philippi, we're working towards the purity and the blamelessness of each other because the day is coming when we will stand before God. He talks about, he links it to the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord, oftentimes people today, evangelicals talk about it, this terrifying thing and God's gonna just slaughter people and throw them into the... The day of the Lord was the great hope of, all, of the world. That's how the Christians looked at it. It's the day when God said everything right and joy would flood the streets and every knee would bow and realize how great and wonderful Jesus actually is that this Jesus that they've heard about that's the day of the Lord. And Paul says, on that day, you're going to be pure and blameless. That's why God is bringing all these conflicts, all these difficulties, because God is making you pure and blameless. And the word for pure that he uses is this word, Elikraneus. Everyone say, Elikraneus. 
All right, well done. Uh, it is two words put together. Paul makes up words all the time. He just makes them up and just throws them in the Bible. Eli refers to the, the shining of the sun. Uh, Krines refers to holding something up in the light and inspecting it deeply, where you can see all the imperfections and all the cracks, all the flaws, but you can also see all the purities as well. And so he describes the day of the Lord like there's going to be a time when all the lights are turned on and you can see exactly how things actually are. And until that day, God is preparing you for that and the conflict will continue. Your responsibility is to respond in Christ-likeness in the fruits of the Spirit, to set a chair across from you, invite God to, to hover over you both and for this person to gather and to sit and to pray to see each other, look each other in the eye. This is how it works. Every early Christian believed in the day of the great revelation and reversal, difficult things that are, understand, that are hard to understand and hard to grasp. They're difficult things, but, but they all believed, even though they didn't know how it would work, and even though we still don't know how this works, we are assured that this will happen. And so essentially, all of these kinds of things, when this day happens, they believed all kinds of things would fall away. If you read Matthew uh, twenty-two twenty, you can see some of this. War, conflict, famine. It even says the seas are going to be thrown into the lake of fire. We're like, the seas? Like, I kind of need those. No, the, the ancient people believed that demons and beasts and leviathans lived in the sea. It's where Satan dwelled. And so that's got to go. <laughs> no sea. Okay? You can boat on the lake. Um, so the seas would even go. He even says even marriage is going to fall away. All of that's going to fall away. All of these things will be replaced with the presence of God and this way that God will order all of us. Um, and as hard as that is, and we kind of want to push back against that, and we're like, I don't know. About God is setting things right. And these are the things that will happen when he sets it right. All of these things will just fall away, uh, and our eyes will be opened as to what this was actually all about. There will come a moment where marriage will be fulfilled. And then you'll be able to look back and be like, oh, that's what that was about. <laughs> Never really understood what marriage was about until now. And I can look back and I, me and this person were working towards each other's sanctification our whole lives for this day. And the work is done. There's so many ways to think about what God is doing in your conflicts and in your life. And God gives you people to carry with you on the journey. Children, friends, roommates, family, church, spouse. God gives them to you for your sanctification and for theirs. Not so that you can inspect them and be like, mm, no, we're good up to about here. I disagree with these things. Next, what else you got? This is not what God is doing. Um, and I want to end today with sort of with this, uh, if you ever read um, any of the, the Russian philosophers, Dostoevsky, he wrote a book called The Brothers Karam uh, Karamazov. I, I want to do a, a quote that stood out to me as I'm reading it this week and I'm reading this passage I'm like, oh, Theodore, you know what you're doing. Okay, here we go. Um, this terrible individualism must inevitably have an end, and humanity will suddenly understand how unnaturally they have separated themselves from one another. It will be the spirit of the time, and people will marvel that they have stayed so long in darkness without seeing the light. This is how the early church talked. One day everyone's going to realize that they need to stop separating themselves like this. And the church is supposed to be the example of that. This belief that God would one day set the world to rights in itself, this is why the early church was so gentle and peaceful with the world outside their doors. Because if you know that God's work is going to happen, 
and that it works through the cross, not through might and coercion, then you can rest and you can respond to conflict with gentleness and peaceableness. That's all I got. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for this place and these people. I pray that you would be with us, all of us. I pray that uh, as, we, as, we, as we leave this space today, as we enter into America from your kingdom, I pray that we would represent you accurately there. I pray that they would get a different glimpse of God from us than they do from others. I pray that you would turn us into a people and fashion us into a people that speak like you and think like you and move like you and sacrifice like you. Thank you, Father. In your name, amen. Stand and join me, will you? Oh, I went too far. Back up once, back up once. Boom, okay, here we go. Nice and loud. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Grace and peace. Love you all. Have the greatest Sunday you have ever had.